Hi, this is Jason Cascarino. Thanks for listening to the Lessons in Adolescence podcast, a production of the Remaking Middle School Initiative, whose founding partners include Youth Next, the University of Virginia's Center to Promote Effective Youth Development, and the Association for Middle-Level Education, or AMLE. You can learn about Remaking Middle School on the web at remakingmiddleschool.org. Now, here's this episode. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Adolescence podcast, where we explore the many facets of young adolescents in the middle school years, from the adverse to the awkward to the awesome. I'm your host, Jason Cascarino. Today, I talk with Laura Ross, a school counselor for Five Forks Middle School in the Gwinnett County Public School District in Georgia, which is the 14th largest school system in the country. Early this year, Laura was named the National School Counselor of the Year by the American School Counselor Association. The award touted her work at Five Forks, particularly in the areas of discipline and restorative justice, and for creating what she calls a connectedness culture. I find that um, even if there's a, a struggle sometimes with one teacher and a student in a relationship and they're having a hard time connecting, there's another teacher that really connects with that student, so they're always able to kind of help in that arena and that student does have another place where they feel connected and it can that person can help build with the other the other teacher as well and so i think we have such a mindset that there's somebody in the building that can support in in the rest of us kind of connecting with a student as well Laura and I talk about how her early experiences working with incarcerated adults motivated her to work with young people, how she and her colleagues have managed to engage their middle school students in a time of pandemic, remote learning, and racial dialogue, and how people's unclear perceptions of the role of school counselors may be driving the current lack of investment in counseling as a whole, despite it being an essential support for youth in the early adolescent years. Now, here's my conversation with Laura Ross. Laura, thanks so much for joining me. It's a delight to have you. Thank you for having me. You are from Georgia. You attended the University of Georgia. And you tell a great story about how you were inspired to get into school counseling by working at an adult men's correctional facility. And I want to talk about that in a minute. But first, I want to just go back a little bit further when you were at the university, because before you entered the realm of education specifically, you earned your degrees in social work. Um, so I just wanted you to tell me a little bit about your journey to that field. What drew you to, to social work? Um, so interestingly enough, I actually started at the University of Georgia as an art major. <laughs> and okay. um, I knew from an early age I wanted to do something with art. Um, and I was an art major for three and a half years <laughs> and um, was trying to pick exactly which field in art that I was going to go into. Um, and I spent a summer um, in Waterbury, Connecticut, working um, in the inner city um, with um, young children, with adolescents, um, in, in different ways, summer camps, um, and other things. And, um, that kind of completely changed my world. And I knew I wanted to work with, um, supporting, um, kids and, and youth. So I switched to social work, um, with the intention of thinking I was going to work with, um, 
with kids, um, with adolescents, with teenagers. Um, And then while in social work, I interned at the men's correctional facility. And then I went that path for a little while. Right, right. But I I imagine you still are able to use art in some way. I mean, if if you have art in you, you're not going to get it out of you, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Yes. I'm always um, I think also that's where some of the creativity comes in what I do as a school counselor. But yes, I'm, I'm definitely always using art um, in some way um, with my students. That's great. Uh, so now to your transition into school counseling about that, uh, that correctional facility. First of all, this place that you worked, where was it? Um, it was in Jefferson, Georgia, and it was a detention center. Um, which in Georgia, we don't actually don't have detention centers anymore. So, um, but it was a um, kind of a lower level than say a prison. Um, but mm-hmm. we mostly had um, detainees that were there, um, had violated a parole or, or probation and got a sentence to a detention center. So they, okay. Uh, very few were there on a direct charge. It was usually a violation of a previous charge, but some of those charges were pretty significant ones. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, I heard that you were, you had said that you were working by and large with gang members. Is that right? Yes. So um, I was a counselor in the facility, but also um, the security threat group coordinator, uh, which meant I had to help identify um, those um, men who came in that were members of gangs. So they became pretty much my caseload, um, mm-hmm. was the majority of gang members. Um, and so I spent a lot of time, you know, learning about why they were involved in gangs and, um, you know, what, uh, what the connection was there for them. Um, and a majority of them, a, a huge majority of them had not finished high school. Um, mm-hmm. Some had not gotten to high school um, before they dropped out of school. Um, and they chose to, um, you know, become members of these gangs. And so that's really learning from them and, and, and the reasons behind that is what then made me um look at school counseling and then going back to the University yeah. of Georgia again for school counseling degree. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. I saw that you had referred to these men as some of the brightest, most charismatic people you had ever encountered, but that the one thing that seemed to be common among them is what you're saying, that they all at some point became disconnected from school. Uh, that was your observation when you were talking with them and, and working with them. Why was that the case? What about their school experience that you know of pushed them away or, or wasn't able to engage them? Yeah, so in, in talking with them, and they were uh, so, so intelligent, so like natural leaders, um, so talented. Um, and they the stories I heard over and over again was just not a connection to one, just to education as a path to success. Um, it wasn't something that they had seen really in their families or communities. It's not something that um, the you know people they were around in their community did. That wasn't a way to be successful. And over and over again, I also heard um, they, they weren't connected while in school to anybody in school. They felt like they didn't belong there. And they truly believe that that's what the educators in the building thought too, that they didn't belong there and shouldn't be there. And so there was never a connection between that intelligence and talents and charisma to 
to an adult in that building that could show them what education could be for them. Um, and so, you know, they found other places that there are other groups that would say, yes, you belong here. We want to use all these talents and, right. and intelligence. Um, and they found that in gangs. And so that's where they found their connection rather than um, with the educators at school. Yeah. Yeah. I want to definitely talk about connections um, in, in this conversation a little bit, but uh, let's, let's dive into middle school. Anytime I tell somebody I work in a middle school, they're like, oh, wow. I mean, you know, bless your heart. You have the toughest. And I'm like, no, no, they get a bad rap. Like mm-hmm. my, our middle schools are great. It's so much mm. fun. And they're so much fun. And yeah. um, I used to think I was an elementary school counselor before I was a middle school counselor. And I thought I'd want to try middle school, but I don't know if I'm cool enough for middle schoolers. Um <laughs> And then I realized once I got in middle school that really no adult's cool enough for middle, middle schoolers yeah, and that's okay. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so sometimes they're like, eh, no, you're not cool or whatever, but they're, they're so, uh, they're so fun and they are so smart and they're, they, I think sometimes we think about middle schoolers and they're just sort of, they don't care and they're just into, you know, their peers and their TikTok videos and, and things like that. But no, yes, they are into all those things, but also they're so thoughtful and smart and paying attention to the world too, and want to do well and have goals in life and, and, you know, all of that together and working with them is just so mm-hmm. much fun. Tell me about Five Forks Middle School. It looked to me to be about half an hour or 40 minutes from downtown Atlanta, yeah. northeast of Atlanta. What's the community like there? Tell me about the kids who go to the school. Um, so uh, Five Forks Middle School is in Gwinnett County Schools, it's a very large district, um, about 180,000 students, I believe. Um, and we're sort of set up by clusters um, based on our high school. So um, Five Forks is in the Brookwood cluster. So we have one high school, two middle schools and four elementary schools. Um, and Five Forks is a, um, I love the diversity of our school. Um, you know, we have um, so many different um, students representing different, you know, populations and different groups. Um, but at our school, they um, definitely get to um, interact with and um, learn with um, a diverse group of, of students. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned before you were a middle school counselor, you were a counselor at an elementary school. And I read somewhere where you had said that you you could spot the changes in young people in their attitudes towards school, toward teachers, toward each other as early as fourth grade. And that would coincide with what developmental scientists would say about early adolescence, right? Which is often demarcated around age 10, uh, which would be around fourth grade. So maybe if you think of yourself less as a elementary school counselor or a middle school counselor, but rather more of a counselor of young adolescents, regardless of grade or school, what are you most preoccupied with? What, what do young people come to you for the most? Tell me a little bit about the day in the life of a school counselor for young adolescents. So um, a variety of things, a lot of it, I think boils down to, the students figuring out who they are as a student, a person, a friend, like where do they fit into to those things? And for some of them, there is, um, you know, struggles with and challenges with academics that make them question 
that. Um, for some students, there are, um, and, and unfortunately, I, I see a little more and more in our students is um, anxiety about, um, you know, it could be about um, where they fit in and, and, and sort of being themselves in a, in a classroom or in the hallways. And even feeling anxious about themselves as students and and what they do now and how it impacts their future and um, you know they're they're at very early ages thinking about that and um, you know where they go after high school and how the things they're doing now impacts that um, it can be um, social situations that impact their self esteem um, and it can be interacting with their peers or interacting uh, um, in person or online. Um, or just viewing social media where um, they start to question themselves. And so then that sort of impacts um, their performance in school. It impacts their interactions with their peers. And, um, you know, it really boils down to who they are, and where they fit in. I read that your your counselor colleague at Five Forks, Jennifer Chapman, she described the amalgam of programs and approaches that you develop and lead at the school as creating a connectedness culture, which seems like your way, I think, of getting squarely at this issue that you've seen to be so much of consequence for young people and as, as middle schoolers and ultimately as they grow into adults. What is connectedness culture? How would you describe that? For me, it's making sure we create a culture where all of our students feel connected to an adult in their in the building, or you know more than one adult, but at least one where um, that adult can then also connect them to their education. So we so they so they don't lose that connection, and so that they um, do see education as a path to success for them. And so that connectedness culture. Um, looks, um, you know, it can be some one-on-one connections with teachers and students. Um, it comes in, you know, the community um, connections that we try to build in our school. Um, you know, we've done some work with um, putting initiatives in for No Place for Hate um, and um, No One Eats Alone Day and things like that to really create inclusive environments. Um, I work uh, the counseling department works really collaboratively with our administration and our principal um, to make sure that we have um, opportunities for our students beyond the classrooms um, in the form of before and after school clubs and activities. So they feel um, connected in those ways um, to something that they're interested in. Um, and we really focus on our teacher student connections and our peer to peer connections at our school. We actually do a, um, in our district, a student engagement instrument twice a year where we are looking at the engagement of our students, um, cognitive engagement and effective engagement. And the effective engagement, um, two pieces are the peer-to-peer support and the teacher-student relationship. Um, you know, we give that data out to our teachers so that they can, you know, see what our students' perspectives are. You know, um, they may, we may feel like we're connecting with them, but they may not feel that connection yet. And so then providing them with ideas, um, reminders, strategies that they can use um, to connect with those students who don't feel a connection um, and really pulling them in and talking beyond, you know, the academics and the grades and finding out about that student as a person, um, not just as a pupil. 
then you can really engage them and connect them to their to their education. So we look for ways, any kind of way that we can support individual teachers in doing that, support um, community through our whole school programming um, so that students feel like they um, belong at our school and feel like they have a connection at our school. You are the National Counselor of the Year, School Counselor of the Year. One of the standout items from your experience at Five Forks that has been held up as an example of why you are deserving of the Counselor of the Year recognition is that a couple of years ago at at Five Forks, you noticed that African-American and Latino male students made up about half of the discipline referrals at the school. Now, the best that I could do looking from the state's district, uh, the district's uh, published data is that I calculated that black and Latino male students at Five Forks represented about a quarter of the enrollment in the school. So their discipline referrals are clearly outsized. You got that number down quite a bit by developing a multi-tiered intervention plan. Tell me more about how you put that plan together. What programs and practices did you draw from to create it? And and what were the the core elements? Yes. So, um, you know, every year we, we look through as a counseling team through our school's data to um, figure out what our counseling program goals will be. Um, And a few years ago we started and we, we, sort of maintained and, and, and looked, obviously the numbers change each year, um, but looking at our discipline data and really looking at it, disaggregated data um, and seeing, you know, who, who's getting referrals in our school. Um, and so when we found that data, um, we really started with supports for those students um, and doing small groups with them. Um, and they were really strength-based groups, really wanting to connect with them, connect them to you know, what's going on in their classroom, setting goals and, um, you know, building upon the strengths that they have. Um, and we didn't see a lot of change in um, data. And, and we had a conversation as a counseling team where we knew this isn't necessarily a student problem um, because the referrals are written by the adults in the school. And so um, we decided to really focus on a tiered approach where there were things that all of our students um, would receive in our classroom lessons. Um, and of course, the, those students, black male students are in those classroom lessons. And so we talked a lot about peer relations um, because that's where also where a majority of our, the referrals came from or the largest percentage of the referrals. And so we really talked about peer relations um, with those students, um, and that included diversity, um, cultural diversity, um, and inclusion, um, our school-wide programs for that. Um, but one of the things um, that we also included for our tier one that everybody got was what all of our teachers received. Um, and so I took we took this connection initiative that we had and the strategies and tips for connecting with students and really started including things about how to be culturally responsive in your pedagogy, how to be culturally relevant in your connections with students, and what some of our students could be experiencing in the classroom that you, that our teachers just need to understand. It's different from for our different students. Um, and then from that, um, 
our principal asked me to um, lead a session with our staff um, on implicit bias. And so we looked at that and we talked about bias and how it can impact um, all of what we do in our classrooms and in, in our school and our interactions with students. And, and we shared discipline data with them and said, like, this is what it said. This is what we have in, in front of us. And if it's, if it's not changes we need to make, then the story is then black male students are bad, which is not correct. So it can't just be on the students and, and what they do. And so really having those conversations um, on the tier two level, we still continued with those groups, those strength-based groups to really support and um, encourage um, those students. Um, but I also offered a, and it was voluntary, a, a book study um, for teachers who were interested. Um, and we did um, Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain by um, Zaretta Hammond. Um, and it really connected this the it's, it was great because it started with connections and our, and our educators in our school were already used to having that conversation about connections. So that part was already, um, you know, they responded to that very well. Um, but then it really talked about how, um, what happens in the classroom with our students and their brains when it doesn't feel safe, when it doesn't feel um, like they are in an environment that is culturally responsive to them. Um, and, and I, you know, shared with our teachers that, you know, we're all working, we have such a diverse school, we're all working with students who have different experiences and backgrounds with us than us. So we all have, um, all need to do that work of being um, culturally responsive. And so when we kind of began this connections piece, it wasn't, we, we didn't, I think, know as much about or use the words as restorative practice, but it so much was. And so we've develop that restorative mindset in the school. And I think, um, you know, even in just interactions with students, the, the steps that our teachers take um, to really communicate and understand and connect with our students, even when a, a problem arises or there is a concern about um, the behavior of a student in a classroom um, and, um and even our assistant principals and who have to deal with the, the discipline referrals and, and when they get them and really trying to um, create that connection with students and understand what's going on and not just, you know, slap a consequence on a piece of paper and then we're done. Um, mm-hmm. And it's one of the things we want to keep building off of um, and really create, um, you know, start using more circles to help really restore with our students, um, new students who come in, um, new uh, students who maybe have been um, at a, a different setting, an alternative school setting, and they come to Five Forks, um, and really creating that um, support um, and connection with uh, multiple adults in the building. And yes, it goes beyond our teachers. Our, our, our grade level clerks are amazing at connecting with students and supporting them in that way. Um, and so um, I find that um, even if there's a, a struggle sometimes with one teacher and a student in the relationship and they're having a hard time connecting, there's another teacher that really connects with that student. So they're always able to kind of help in that arena and that student does have another place where they feel connected and it can, that person can help build with the other, the other teacher as well. And so I think we have such a mindset that there's somebody in the building that can support in, in the rest of us kind of connecting with a student as well. Let's talk a little bit about the experience in this pandemic. 
I'd be curious to know what, what, what you've heard from your students from afar, what has worried you, what has given you hope. Just tell me what this experience has been. So when we started this virtual learning and virtual counseling, I, I definitely felt like I was learning to be a school counselor all over again. Um, you know, I, I knew what our students still needed, um, but it was a different way of um, of trying to do the work. And, um, you know, it's the challenges were when you're in school and you know your students, and you see them walking down the hall or they walk in that morning and you know, no, something's, something's not right. You could tell they're a little off or they're sad or they're angry. Something's happened in the middle of the day, coming back from another class. And we don't have that part where I can just see and go, okay, what, what's happening? What's, um, let's talk and how can I support you? Um, and I think in the same way for our teachers, where our teachers also really are eyes and ears because they are with them more than we are um, in the classrooms. Um, and so they always, um, like us, more aware of what's going on with our students. Um, and so it just was a lot of what are all the different ways we can reach out? We'll use every avenue um, that we can. And um, so it was, you know, phone calls, home, setting up, um, video conferencing um, with those that could do it. Um, it was uh, creating um, video conferencing, just spaces where um, we, I borrowed from a friend in another district doing kicking it with the counselor and invited everybody, whoever wanted to join in, like just make any space available, um, constantly pushing out to them how they could reach us, um, emailing individual students, middle schoolers are not great with email, but some right. got the hang of it and would check their email. So if that was a way to cut con- any way that we could contact them. Um, or contact parents to check on those students that we know we normally saw frequently. Um, and even for students who maybe we didn't see before as much, but um, other than like our classroom lessons and school-wide things, but because of what was going on now needed some support. It was very um, challenging for some of our students to continue to get on a computer screen as much as we think our students like screens. Um, it was hard for some of our students to keep that motivation. Um, it was hard for our students, uh, particularly middle school students, to be away from peers. Um, mm-hmm. I know that, uh, yes, many of them have social media, but that face-to-face is still so important for them, too. And so some of the things we did was if a teacher was having a, a live uh, video conference, we would ask to be invited so we could get in there and just see some kids and remind them um, that we're around. And um, yeah. so, yeah, we, we tried every avenue <laughs> to try right. connect with that's, our students. So we'll keep the doing FaceTime that. FaceTime is so important, right? Yeah. Yeah. They, you know, they need to know that you're still, that you're still there. Um, but that is sort of the conversation that people are having is, you know, in a, in an era of remote and of social distancing, we still have young adolescents who that is their, that is who they are and what they need developmentally just as human beings is that they are social creatures. We're all social creatures, but that particular age range, all of their, their development and and what you had said about, you know, who they are and their identity formation issues of self-efficacy and the whole, the whole bit is a lot driven from social context and social interaction and relationships. 
And so that's um, that's that's the challenge. And I imagine as a counselor, making sure that there's some way to 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 stay connected meaningfully, uh, even though we can't uh, see each other as much. Absolutely. And I know we did. It's funny. I was like, I feel like I'm like a pep talk queen. because That's a lot of what I was doing, like individuals like, okay, like you can do this and just really helping them, helping them come up with a plan. I think that was very helpful because when they could articulate what they needed to do or what was going to help them and then and then do those steps. Um, I think that was helpful, but sometimes it, it, it took those pep talks and things um, to do that. Um, it's one of the reasons why all of the counseling-led um, clubs, we decided to continue virtually mm-hmm. um, to, to create that space um, for our students. Um, and so, yeah, it was, you know, video conferencing, but uh, and then my co-counselor did a Lego club and she still had students join in on Zoom and build Legos at the same time together. Um, I continued our GSA um, and they they absolutely were like, yes, every week we still want to meet. Um, and, and that was really important and necessary for them to stay connected with that group of students and um, yeah. continued our, our girl talk and yoga class. So all of those things. So our, our students had um, any space um, possible to keep that social connection um, with their peers. Well, well, and there's the there's the kind of micro social connection, and then there's sort of the macro. Um, I'd be curious in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder and the widespread protests of, on racial injustice and demonstrations to advocate for racial equity. Have you been able to engage with your students in in this dialogue and around around these events? I actually have. Um... You know, I reached out um, to my principal. We are constantly communicating, texting about everything that's going on and um, really good thinking partners. And I, I said, I, I can I do something now? I know it's summer break, but I can't I can't wait till fall. Like, I, I feel like mm-hmm. I, the students need a space now. And so um, she said, absolutely. So um, we did four Zoom um, sessions. I did one for each grade level, sixth, seventh, eighth, and my co-counselor, um, Jenny Chapman joined me on those. And then I did one that was an affinity group just for our black African-American students so that they had their own space to really talk about, um, you know, the anti-black violence and what experiences and, and feelings it brings up for them. Um, so, uh, we did that, um, sometime in June, I believe, um, and invited students to sign up um, and then sent them the Zoom link. And we really just created a space. We tried to make it as much as a community circle as, as possible that we can on Zoom and just create a space for them um, to, you know, we set the intention of, of in agreements for the talk and just let them share how they're feeling um, and all the different ways that they're feeling, share what experiences they're having by um, witnessing what's going on, what experiences they're having just, you know, in their own world, you know, our, our black students definitely have um, different sort of thoughts and worries um, about what their family or they themselves might experience. Um, Allow them to bring up incidents where, you know, did this bring up things in the past, if you want to share and talk about where you have faced racism or bias or um, witnessed someone else. Um, And then I asked um, for them to tell us what they need from us. 
um, what is it they need and want from us? And they gave us so many great ideas of what um, they feel would help support them um, in school, what they feel would help them grow um, in school and learn. And then we ended with, um, I wanted to check and make sure that they had some sort of support and self-care as we're talking about this and as they're witnessing things that are going on, how are they caring for themselves and um, do they have somebody to connect with after this? Um, mm-hmm. And and so um, from that, I have ideas that my principal said, I want to hear them all. And maybe they, if they want to meet um, and, and share more, and we're going to continue those conversations with our students, um, even virtually as we move into the, the school year. Um, and use some of their ideas. I mean, they came up with some amazing things. Um, one student suggested a a group for self-care for students of color um, who may be experiencing things. One one wants, she's, she, she's great. And she's like, I know this might take time, but I think there needs to be a class um, <laughs> and, and a class that students can take. Um, and so it's just great. And I think hearing their voices and how they are feeling, what they're experiencing and what they need from us is important for um, one, for them just to be heard um, and to really know that we, that what they're feeling and we know they're experiencing too. I, I, you know, I was sitting, you know, in my living room. I'm like, well, if I'm feeling this way as a, as an adult, <laughs> um, our students are are experiencing some some tough um, emotions as well. Um, but also to that, you know, that's what we're here for. We're here for them. So to hear what they need from us, um, I think is so important, so that we can put in place exactly, you know, what what they need. In our remaining moments here, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the counselor of the year, Kent not talk about it. It it seems like one of the responsibilities you've taken on having been afforded this honor of of counselor of the year is being a champion for school counselors generally. Um, And there is a pretty significant capacity shortage when it comes to counselors in our schools, just nationally, it may be different in where you are, but how big is that gap? and, And why is it such a big problem? You know, I think it comes down to a, a just fundamental understanding of what school counselors are trained to do. Um, I, I talk about this often, you know, with school counselors. When you say someone's a teacher, you have a pretty good idea of what they do, no matter what they teach or where they're teaching, what state, what district, what level. There's an understanding of what teachers do. But when you talk about school counselors, um, the experience people have had with school counselors or, or, or not had because they didn't have a school counselor when they were in school or the tasks that sometimes school counselors are given to do in a school building vary from building to building, from district to district. And so there really isn't an, a um, clear um, understanding of what school counselors are are trained to do. and so. Um, I think it's getting better. I think people also are noticing um, it's unfortunate because it comes in tandem with seeing um, mental health concerns and and different things come up in school where people are noticing that school counselors are are necessary um, and really listening to what it is that we can do and, and, and how we can positively impact the school and the students rather than being tasked with Um, non-counseling things um, that take up so much time and they take us away from students. And I think um, 
because of that not the misunderstanding of what we do, then the school counselor to student ratio is just all all over the place. Um, the American School Counselor Association recommends 250 to 1. There are a couple of states that have that, but most states um, are not um, close to that. Then that also creates a barrier to school counselors showing what they can do because they don't have the capacity to do that when there are so many students to work with, and it makes it very challenging. And so, um, well, it's a significant yeah. immediate concern when we think about students coming back to school. They're coming back having many kids experiencing pretty significant trauma, and and even if not, they are experiencing some measure of loss, whether it's the social measures that we've been talking about, etc. So the lack of of strong counseling support, it either gets put on teacher shoulders, which there's a whole mm-hmm. lot that's already on their shoulders. Um, there's certainly after school programs that do their that do their best, and they and they uh, a lot of them do a fine job in, in some of these things. But the counselors seem like a pretty a vital role, particularly right now. Absolutely, and and that's one of the things where um, you know we talk about the ratio for of school counselors to student and and we do not have a 250 to 1 ratio we have a pretty large right we're around 1200 students and there's two grade level counselors and so the the benefit that we have and the thing that i think a lot of there are many school counselors that they don't have is that we our principal believes in in school counseling and what school counselors provide to the school and the, and the students and so we don't have a lot of extra non-counseling duties that take up so much of our time. We are allowed to be school counselors. Um, and it really should be 80% of the time, direct or indirect, you know, um, involvement with our students or, or their parents or teachers, um, and 20% of that school support. And so um, we get to do that. Um, and I think that's where um, that number is so important to me. Um, you know, yes, uh, a smaller ratio, of course, would of course would be great. But even if you had the smaller ratio, if you didn't have the time to actually mm-hmm. be a school counselor, that wouldn't matter. And so, um, being afforded and making sure that we have that time to be school counselors, and and not being tasked with testing coordination or um, being a part of discipline, which is just a true conflict of interest, and um, in how a counselor would support a student. Um, and then giving discipline consequences. I know counselors that are faced with with doing that, and so they they can't make the impact um, that they make, and they can't support um, students. And especially now, with you know, our students are dealing yes with the grief and loss um, and um, disappointments of of loss of the social aspects. But I know you know we have students and families who have lost family members, and mm-hmm, um, exactly. the 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 anxious feelings about what's going on, the anxious feelings about doing school um, in a virtual way, um, worried about any sort of spreading of um, COVID-19, you know, and the um, just overall sort of on edge (laughs) feeling. I think that we all kind of are on and wondering and balancing everything. I think so importantly, our counselors need to be available to our students to do school counseling um, and really support our students um, collectively and, and those individual students who need even more support. Yeah. And I, and I always go back to middle school, right? So there's all, a lot of what you said is, is probably true for kids at all ages. But when you think about particularly middle school, 
the developmental time period that we talked about in terms of how they're viewing themselves. When when young people at that age are starting to understand structural inequity in a more sophisticated way and where they are and what their place is in, in it, that has some profound effects. And then that just says, says nothing about that, to your point about, you know, them having senses of loss, they may be economically displaced, they may be have lost family members, etc. And by the way, it's middle school, they're going through a transition, they're transitioning from one school to another, they're transitioning, you know, the beginning transition classes, relationships, etc. They're already in a state of vulnerability. And so that's, I think, some of the worry that people have around middle school specifically uh, when it comes to things around mental health and social emotional support and, you know, all of those things. You know, they're, they're maturing and they, they are um, thinking about their own self in this world and everything that's going on. And they want to take on these responsibilities that really are adult responsibilities, but they take them on themselves too. And so then that's a, another um, piece of stress that they put on themselves of, you know, things have to change and um, wanting to help and wanting to solve problems, which is great. But then some of them put it, it's just too much on themselves with everything else that's going on. So that's also a piece of what they are, are, are dealing with. Yeah. Yeah. So just to conclude, if there was one thing, one bit of advice based on your experience working with middle school aged youth that you would offer to educators both in school and in after school and summer programs there's a lot of adults who are working with young people in this age range of the things that they either ought to know or ought to be doing what what would it be i think the biggest thing and i actually just um, talked with some folks at mercer university about this yesterday is um, there's a fantastic um, young adult novel by Jacqueline Woodson called Harbor Me. Um, And in that book, a teacher asked the students um, what they would do if the worst thing happened. Would they harbor each other? Um, And asked them to to acknowledge to each other that I would harbor you. And so when I read that, I thought of what we need to do for our students and have that harbor for them, that place that they can come and be heard, um, and where they can heal, um, where they can um, learn from each other and talk and empathize and um, create some hope um, for what it is that that they need in that moment to feel supported um, and what it what they need to um, continue to grow and feel. Um, as though they feel connected and feel like they belong um, in our schools or our after-school programs, um, whatever it is. Um, I, I truly think creating that harbor where we listen to our students' voices um, because they are who we do this work for and do this work with. Um, and if we aren't listening to their voice and creating that space to hear their voices, their true voices, um, then we're we're missing um, we're missing what we really should be doing. Laura, it's been such fun talking with you. Thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely. This was a great talk. Thank you for inviting me. That was Laura Ross, school counselor at Five Forks Middle School in Lawrenceville, Georgia, and the 2020 National Counselor of the Year. You can follow Laura on Twitter at LRossSCH. CNSLR. 
Thanks for joining the Lessons in Adolescence podcast, a production of Remaking Middle School, an initiative that seeks to transform the learning and development experience for young adolescents in the middle school years. Remaking Middle School brings together good educational practice in school and out of school with the latest developmental science. You can learn about Remaking Middle School or find more resources about the topics of this podcast on the web at remakingmiddleschool.org or learn more about the founding partner organizations, the University of Virginia's Youth Next Center on the web at curry.virginia.edu slash youth-next, N-E-X, or on Twitter at youth underscore next, and the Association for Middle Level Education on the web at amle.org or on Twitter at amle. The Lessons in Adolescence podcast is produced by Abby Gillespie and me, Jason Cascarino. You can listen to or download each episode at the Remaking Middle School website, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening.